know exactly what's going on right now. Big election. They think they're going to fucking cheat us out of our vote with Congress fucking Biden in office. It ain't fucking happening today, buddy. You voted? Yes, sir. How did you go? Voted early. It went well, except for uh, the... Can't, can't really trust the software. Dominion software all over. We voted, and right in the top right-hand corner of the Dominion voting machine that we used, there was a Wi-Fi symbol with five bars. So that most definitely connected to the internet, without a doubt. So they stole that from us twice. We're not doing it anymore. We're not taking it anymore. So we're standing up, we're here, and whatever happens, we're not laying down again. Episode 16, Rudy the Drunk's Big Lie. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to this episode was provided by the January 6 committee from their second public hearing dated June 13, 2022. Uh, it was essentially recordings that they had selected to be played at the very end of the hearing, which some people may have missed, therefore, um, of Trumpists at the rally, uh, in fact, on January 6th and within the Capitol, various locations, different times of day during January 6th, all of them claiming that, you know, again, without evidence, but based on the big lie that they were there because... Uh, Allegedly, Biden had stolen the election from Trump using some kind of electronic nefarious skullduggery. So this is going to be a one-note episode, yet another of in the series of my more rapid episodes in response to the January 6th committee hearings. I'm not even going to do the numbers. Uh, I'm just going to get right into it. The second hearing on June 13th was about what's often referred to, of course, as the big lie. The campaign by Trump and his inner circle to spread election disinformation in the run-up to January 6th. Some of this involved legal challenges to the legitimacy of the process. According to Representative Zoe Lofgren of California, uh, her, her account, the committee found a total of 62 court cases filed by the Trump campaign relating to the big lie, of which they lost 61, and the one remaining instance was, of course, fairly trivial and non-decisive. But here's the thing. Trump knew he would lose. And the other plotters also knew that he would lose. He would lose all those court cases. This ultimately wasn't about the court cases. Now, how did they know? Well, for starters, the big lie was something that they made up from whole cloth themselves, right? Based on dead Nicaraguan politicians, Italian orbital mind control lasers, and an awful lot of bad math. This was the kind of bad math that was able to get high school dropouts from around the country to talk about how the election results were statistically impossible when these are people who got a C in middle school 
algebra, but somehow they now have, you know, uh, graduate level knowledge of statistics. But we've already heard the evidence that demonstrated that one group involved uh, absolutely didn't think that court that Trump would win in court. Anybody remember when that was? It was, of course, in season two, episode 10. Elmer Rhodes plus MTG equals OMG. This is Exhibit 10 in the Vallejo Discovery Material, the recording of a video conference between Elmer Rhodes, Kelly Sorrell, and a whole slew of Oath Keepers, recorded on November 9th, 2020. I mention it in this connection because it shows uh, prior coordination between people who stormed the Capitol and someone in the inner circle who uh, not only had access to the numbers and the information, uh, but also a realistic expectation of how they would fare in court. The, this recording is you know, significant for many reasons, but also because it shows that there's, there's unanimity between you know, what the Trump campaign believed, as we'll see in the testimony, that all of Trump's experts saw, okay, we lost legit, the election legitimately, and we're not going to win our court cases, to what the Oath Keepers were saying privately in their meeting. So here's what Rhodes told the Oath Keepers during that meeting, again, from November 9th, 2020. Quote, now there's some legal stuff going on. There's an active team working on building the case for the election fraud. I think that's worth doing. All these things matter. But in the end, I don't trust lawyers or judges, and I don't think that's going to do it entirely on its own. It's going to take a combined effort. The people need to be rich on the ground in Washington, D.C., making it clear that they are not going to take it. By the way, that rich on the ground part, is, I actually think there's a transcription error. Um, I, I think that's actually what he said from the context. Or it may, might have been thick on the ground. Again, I don't have access to the actual recording. Um, I'm just going by the transcript. But the, the basic gist of it is that you're going to need a whole bunch of people on the ground. And from context, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, is he talking about January 6th? Don't mention January 6th specifically in that context. Uh, or is he talking about other events in December? Again, unclear. But he's saying, you know, we need a combined effort. Then a bit later on in the same transcript, uh, attorney Kelly Sorrell is talking about the various pods that she's working with. You'll recall that these are the pods that they are uh, working independently, well, in a coordinated fashion, but again, kind of a crowdsourcing network of people doing this work. Um, and this is what she has to say. Quote, I will say that we have, over the last few days, transitioned from suit filings, which there will be suit filings, so don't think there's not going to be that. But also talk of things like insurrection and rebellion is probably more the terminology. End quote. So remember, friends, that's on November 9th, 2020. And that's the Oath Keepers giving us essentially the same line that Trump's own team was giving him. The election was, you know, you're not going to win in court, right? Now, the Oath Keepers are, are saying there's election fraud here. Obviously, Rhodes maintains that. But again, they know they're not going to win in court is the main thing. From November 9th, as, as that early, right? 
So they've already mobilized the Oath Keepers on November 9th for the next step of the process. So the Oath Keepers knew somehow that the lawsuits would fail. If they legitimately believed, by the way, that there had been election fraud, why would they have that expectation? Um, they're, you know, calling for this combined effort. And of course, when Rhodes says combined effort, I think of combined arms. This combined effort is implicitly combining force with fraud, which is extremely Machiavellian, by the way, right there in the prints. It uh, talks about the necessity for the prince to uh, know when to use force, know when to use fraud. Anyway, sorry, political theory moment. So this is a slow boil created for public consumption. I'm talking about the committee testimony here, right? They are developing this story. They are marinating it. They are fermenting it slowly. And what they're trying to do, I believe, is to give the public a collective aha moment. This is powerful storytelling. Now, they have not yet shown the connection between what the Oath Keepers knew on November 9th and what the Trump people were saying at roughly the same time to Donald Trump, right? That, yeah, we can take this court. We're probably going to lose. The election loss was legitimate. We should wait for them to count the votes, and then you ought to concede, right? Of course, Trump did none of that. So, if they knew that they had no viable legal case, you know, they're going to have to resort to force. And it's across all those pots, right, is what I'm trying to say here. The Oath Keepers, that transcript demonstrates that there's a group of people, several groups of people, the pods that Sorrell identifies, and that they are all working in concert. They have access to the same information about what is, you know, a likely failure of legal resource based on the fact that ultimately... You know, it's not lawyers and judges. They don't have a case. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, let's talk about the second hearing. One big newsworthy moment came rather early on when Liz Cheney said this, quote, You will also hear testimony that President Trump rejected the advice of his campaign experts on election night and instead followed the course recommended by an apparently inebriated Rudy Giuliani just to claim he won and insist that the vote counting stop to falsely claim everything was fraudulent, end quote. So at this point, right, election night, Trump has the best Republican campaign staff money can buy. And yet he's not listening to them because he knows that they're going to tell him to concede if he is the loser once the counting is done. Stepien, in his recorded testimony, emphasized that point several times. Instead, Trump listens to Rudy Giuliani, who's a drunk clown, but a drunk clown who's going to tell Trump what he wants to hear. But this one detail of Giuliani's drunkenness is just the kind of thing to capture the public's imagination. Um, yes, it, it goes to, you know, perhaps Trump's judgment, to listen to him when he's inebriated. It's particularly noteworthy, of course, when you consider that Trump's brother, Fred Trump Jr., was a chronic alcoholic who died of alcohol abuse at the age of 42, and Trump himself has been known to express disdain for the habit of drunkenness, and for Rudy Giuliani in particular, as a human being. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it, that shows you, right? You've got various people, stone-cold sober, 
the light of day. These are the election experts that you've hired. These are the, the campaign staff that you've hired. These are the people who are running your national campaign. They're telling you how it's going to go because that's predicated on how things usually go. Losers consent. You, you know, everything is fair. You come back next time. You go back to the drawing board. You rework the campaign. You rework your platform. And at the end of the day, you know, we have elections every two years in this country, four years in the presidential level. You can run for office again. But that's not what Trump intended, of course. So we're getting behind some of the logic behind the January 6th committee hearings now. So I'd like to offer my thoughts on that. Um, the committee appears to be proceeding roughly chronologically, beginning at the beginning. The Proud Boys went first, I think, because they were the first to attack the Capitol. But now, in the second hearing, we're going back in time a little bit to the immediate aftermath of Trump's massive electoral repudiation. And it's worth taking a moment here, to because I don't think we talk about this enough, um, that it was a massive electoral repudiation. Trump won by 74 electoral, sorry, Trump lost by 74 electoral votes. That is a massive amount. That is California plus Biden, plus Biden, plus Wisconsin and Minnesota, right? So 74 electoral votes is California's 54 plus Wisconsin's 10 and Minnesota's 10. Now, there are five states, right, that they were going to claim fraud in. So if Biden had won by a slightly smaller margin, it wouldn't have really made a difference. But if it had come down to one fairly large state, like, you know, let's say Michigan's 15 votes or Pennsylvania's 19 votes or Florida, like it did in 2000, um, there's, there could have been some legal outcome that could have changed it, right? Something like Bush v. Gore back in 2000. That's why they needed Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, right? It's electorally absurd on its face. You know, somehow it's really a low probability event to turn, you know, one state using uh, some kind of legal strategy. But to turn, you know, five states or seven states, legal challenges were never going to get the job done. And so I think that's partly why the big lie had to be so big. You couldn't have just one egregious court ruling that would flip one state to change the outcome. It had to be more. And so the plotters conjured up a massive conspiracy from thin air because that's what it took. I'd like to draw your attention to this statement from Benny Thompson uh, in the first hearing on June 9th. Quote, any legal jargon you hear about seditious conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, boils down to this. January 6th was a culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. End quote. Now, Thompson's doing a little bit of sleight of hand here. He's saying, don't pay attention to these things. But in fact, these things are vitally important because... These are the potential charges facing the inner circle of conspirators. I don't know if any of them will actually be charged with seditious conspiracy, as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys have been, because there's an element of that particular crime that includes opposing the actions of the government by force. 
Um, although, you know, that charge may be possible if they do establish a link between the inner circle of plotters and the, the violent attackers. Um, but unless that's demonstrated, my belief is that they, the most likely charge uh, is going to be conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, and also, again, it's worth noting that Thompson includes this conspiracy to defraud the United States. The big lie was a fraud, and a fraud that was done in the service of another fraud. A fraud that was done in the service of a crime, and there was conspirators who acted to perpetuate that fraud. It served to justify the appointment of fraudulent electoral slates of electors that, you know, were appointed by no one in secret, right? You know, which again shows their cognizance of the fact that this was improper. So, if you're having some problem understanding why the big lie hearing matters, this is it. The big lie made it possible for the Trumpists to mobilize not only the mob, but also the entire fake elector scheme that was Plan A, the so-called clean coup. The big lie was a precondition for both the clean coup and the scheme to attack the Capitol, invoke the Insurrection Act, and have the military stages to sham election, or some version thereof. Right? There were different avenues of approach that were available to them once the Capitol was attacked. Both Cheney and Thompson have made reference to a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the election. This plan was based on the committee's understanding of events leading up to January 6th and the events of that day as it unfolded, rather than some document the committee has uh, detailed, conveniently labeled, secret master plan to overturn the election results. CNN was given a copy of this plan by a source affiliated with the committee. This is, again, another one of those strategic releases of information that I've talked about before. Here it is. 1. President Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information to the American public, claiming the 2020 election was stolen from him. 2. President Trump corruptly planned to replace the acting Attorney General so that the Department of Justice would support his fake election claims. 3. President Trump corruptly pressured Vice President Pence to refuse to count certified electoral votes in violation of the U.S. Constitution and the law. 4. President Trump corruptly pressured state election officials and state legislators to change election results. 5. President Trump's legal team and other Trump associates instructed Republicans in multiple states to create a false electoral slates and transmit those slates to Congress and the National Archives. 6. President Trump summoned and assembled a violent mob in Washington and directed them to march on the U.S. Capitol. 7. As the violence was underway, President Trump ignored multiple pleas for assistance and failed to take immediate action to stop the violence and instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. So please note that the onus here is all on Donald Trump. I make reference sometimes to an inner circle of conspirators, and the committee itself makes reference here only to Donald Trump. I don't think that the committee's understanding is really different from my own in this regard, but please note that here what they're doing is to demonstrate a laser-like focus on Donald Trump himself.
In any event, the hearing on June 13th clearly focused on step one, the engineer's effort to support the big lie. I thought the bit at the end with the various Trumpists in the mob that I use as the intro to this episode was very effective. I thought it would have been a good intro for them to use on their own presentation, but I'm not an ABC News producer. Chairman Thompson did an excellent job establishing the norms of electoral politics, particularly the norm we call loser's consent. The norm that losers will step aside and acknowledge their electoral defeat when they get fewer votes than their opponent. Quote, quoting Thompson here, The numbers tell you the winner and the loser. For the most part, the numbers don't lie. But if something doesn't add up with the numbers, you go to court to get resolution. And that's the end of the line. We accept those results. That's what it means to respect the rule of law. That's what it means to select, to seek elective office in our democracy. And, of course, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, as always, was very effective. She knows sarcasm. She knows all the tricks. Dramatic irony, metaphor, bathos, puns, parody, latudes, and satire. Quote, He falsely told the American people that the election was not legitimate. In his words, a major fraud. Millions of Americans believed him. Second, pay attention to what Donald Trump and his legal team said repeatedly about Dominion voting machines, far-flung conspiracies, with a deceased Venezuelan communist allegedly pulling the strings. Several times, the committee hammered home the point that it was Donald Trump's own top campaign people, the people he chose and hired for those roles, who gave him pushback. Trump can't simply discount these people as non-MAGA or swamp rhinos. If that was the case, why did he hire them? He is the immortal god emperor, after all, flawless and utterly without blemish. He'd already decided, certainly before the election, that he would never concede under any circumstances, even if he lost by a whopping 74 electoral votes and over 7 million popular votes. I believe that this story of the big lie is important in part because the plan for violence was baked in. Now, to some extent, I believe that they are really burying the lead here. Trump resolved to use force early on. He resolved to use both force and fraud. They should keep it as simple as possible, even if this is kind of a reductionist account. Uh, they really need to, to grab the public with a compelling story here. At any rate, I'd like to turn to some of the new material that we saw in this hearing. For example, there was this from Matthew Morgan, the Trump campaign general counsel, who described a meeting that was held by Mike Pence's staff on January 2nd in order to review the information on election fraud that the Trump people were pushing on Pence. Quote, Generally discussed on that topic was whether the fraud and maladministration, abuse, or irregularities, if aggregated and read most favorably to the campaign, would that be outcome determinative? And I think everyone's assessment in the room, at least among the staff, Mark Short and myself and Greg Jacob, was that it was not sufficient to be outcome determinative. End quote. Now, to be honest, 
That's a pretty weak formulation. But this particular bit of information and first-hand testimony about the January 2nd meeting is nonetheless new information, at least so far as I can tell. Outcome determinative? That's a very milquetoast phrase here. Uh, what they were proposing is a kind of a wild acid trip fantasy. Say what you will about Bill Barr, but he actually came up with a much better formulation and summation of this than Morgan did. Quote, I make it clear that I did not agree with the idea of saying that the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. And, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it. And that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. Now, Barr is himself completely and entirely full of bullshit. He has 20 pounds of bullshit stuffed into a 10-pound sack. I want to make that clear. He's trying to redeem himself. He himself contributed greatly to the erosion of the rule of law during his time as the Attorney General of the United States during the Trump administration. But, you know, you take your allies where you can get them. And I thought he was a very effective witness, especially now that we know that Ivanka respects him so much. Um, you, you can't be too picky, yeah, I guess, when there's an existential threat to electoral democracy in the United States. Yes, he has his own agenda, but the testimony here, I think, was pretty good. I mean, especially when you compare it to phrases such as, you know, non-outcome determinative, uh, which is what Morgan said, right? So another witness I found uh, very effective was Eric Hirschman, a Trump White House attorney. Hirschman reportedly left a partnership at the law firm of Kazowitz Benson Torres for a job working for Trump during the first impeachment. He was getting paid over $3.3 million a year as a partner, and he takes a job for a president tried to stage a coup and resist the peaceful transfer of power. Um, unlike others, or some of the others, he really does seem to get the significance of what Trump has uh, attempted. Quote, What they were proposing, I thought, was nuts. You know, the theory was also completely nuts, right? I mean, it was a combination of Italians and Germans. I mean, different things have been floating around uh, as to who was involved. I remember Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelans. She has an affidavit from somebody who says that they wrote a software and something with the Philippines. Just all over the radar. End quote. Again, the, the she here referred, of course, to Cindy Powell. So, the claims of the people perpetuating the election fraud narrative are simply ridiculous. And I think that this was pretty effective testimony. It won't persuade people who are already invested in the big lie, but I think it will move the needle in public opinion. Unlike you, dear listener, uh, most people haven't been paying close attention. This is the kind of testimony from Trump insiders speaking very frankly about the Trump administration's absurd claims and their violation of law and the norms of electoral politics that I think can actually break through. There is a certain proportion of Republican and Republican-leaning independent voters who may be persuadable. It's not a huge proportion, but it could be the margin in some districts. 
I'd like to turn now for a moment to Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager. Stepien was unable to testify based on the claim that his wife went into labor. This is their first child. Now, some people have said, aha, he's backing out because Trump forced him to. But I don't think that's the case. If you've ever been through this, you know that Braxton Hicks is a thing that exists. And that the job of a father in the 21st century is to just drop everything and take active part in the labor and delivery and support their wife or the, the mother of their child. Sometimes you, you know, you do have what, like what people used to call false labor, right? And, you know, you'll wind up not getting a baby until a week later. And yet, there are right now people who are asking about uh, Stepien's wife's medical history, whether or not they scraped her membranes, whether or not they administered Pitocin, which, by the way, Pitocin, that, that's an off-label use. It really, you know, does nothing for dilation, just makes the contraction stronger. Bad idea, they use it all the time. Anyway, uh, all sorts of other things, you know. We can't just support medical privacy when it suits us. This is a woman who was full term with her first baby, and she went to the hospital. That's all you need to know. That's good enough for me. I, I don't need to, you know, engage in any kind of conspiracy theory here. Now, again, do I think Stepien is being self-serving, like Barr and so certain other Trump officials and campaign staff? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there are some other people, if you're looking for a candidate for John Dean, who fit it better than Bill Stepien, um, as we'll see here in his description of how he came to work for Trump. Quote, I inherited a campaign that was, the day I was hired was, I believe, Tre President Trump's low point in the 2020 daily average polling against President Biden. It was... It was a campaign at a low point in the polls. It was structurally and fiscally deficient. You know, I, you know, there was a great deal wrong with the campaign in, in, in both of those in, in both of those areas. So most of my day was spent fixing what, and I think I took over with 115 days left in the campaign. Most of my time was spent fixing the things that could be fixed with 115 days left in the campaign. Now, Stepien is clearly minimizing his role here, right? Stepien is still perfectly happy to work for Trump as candidates to take money from Trump affiliates and Trump donors. But on the other hand, you know, he's trying to tell those donors and potential clients something, right? He's trying to remind them of the incredibly bad job that Brad Parscale did in the Trump 2020 campaign. Now, we tend to forget about this now, but you might remember that Parscale paid himself commissions on ad buys, something nobody does. You don't, you don't, if you're the head of a campaign, you don't pay yourself commissions on ad buys? Absolutely, sir. I, I think something like $40 million uh, he pocketed from that. I, I could be wrong. That's just off the top top of my head. Um, but, you know, millions of dollars. And, of course, 
that creates an incentive for him to make more ad buys and make those ad buys as soon as possible. And as a consequence, uh, the Trump campaign uh, in the late spring, early summer, all the way up to the convention of 2020, just burned through money at an incredible and, and really unprecedented rate. Hundreds of millions of dollars before the convention itself. And of course, the, his role in the campaign ends with him having a, a public breakdown that ends up with him shirtless in, in the back of a squad car. So, you know, I like Bill Stepien. You know, I mean, this is a guy who uh, is very sus, as, as the kids would say. But on the other hand, you know, uh, he did he did inherit something that was awful. And, you know, I, I think here he's got his own agenda, and he's trying to say, look, look, I mean, yeah, we, we lost, and yeah, maybe I'll take the L. But by the way, uh, I came in, you know, in, in the third quarter, and there was this other guy who was utterly unprepared, and he, he absolutely was, right? Parscale's like a digital media guy who basically his job in 2016, which he did very well, was managing a network of bots and trolls. That's what he did, bots and trolls. Could he manage a national campaign? You know, he winds up shirtless in the back of a squad car. I don't think so. Anyway, uh, you know, Stepien's a, a Republican political operative. Uh, he's looking forward to his post-Trump future, as so many of them are. Um, while, you know, nonetheless not going so far that potential clients are going to consider him too toxic in, uh, you know, the current megaverse that is the Republican Party. Nonetheless, all that being considered, uh, I thought his recorded testimony was effective, his tone was good, and he seemed very forthright. Stepien testified about how far Trump's desire to declare victory was, while votes were you know, still being counted, and how this deviated from standard practice in campaigns, particularly in presidential politics. Quote from Stepien again, It was far too early to be making any calls like that. In other words, because, you know, uh, the decision to concede or not concede. Ballots. Ballots were still being counted. Ballots were going to still be counted for days, and it was far too early to be making any proclamation like that. End quote. In other words, Trump's premature proclamation of victory. He goes on, quote, The president disagreed with that. I don't recall the particular words. He thought I was wrong. He told me so. And, you know, they were going to, you know, go in it. He was going to go in a different direction, end quote. And here, he's absolutely correct, of course. The last thing you want to do as a candidate is to declare victory and to be, then be proven wrong by the final vote tally. Now, that's true of a normal candidate, of course. Trump was determined at this point to reject reality and substitute his own. Also, using testimony from Stepien and Jason Miller, again, step both of them effectively in absentia at this point, 
the committee recreated a meeting that took place on election night. Stepien, quote, A lot of conversations were directed my way. A few of us, myself, Jason Miller, Justin Clark, Mark Meadows, gathered in a room off the map room to, to listen to whatever Rudy presumably wanted to say to the president. Then there's video evidence from Jason Miller. Quote, I think effectively Mayor Giuliani was saying, we want it. They're stealing it from us. Where'd all the votes come from? We need to go say that we won. And essentially, to anyone who didn't agree with that position, was being weak. End quote. So that was new. The detailed description of how it was that Trump's own top campaign staff told Trump not to declare victory. This was consistent across a number of different witnesses. In particular, their narrative seemed crafted to highlight the role of Rudy Giuliani. Now, I don't think that the only reason why Trump tried to claim victory was because he got bad advice from an apparently inebriated Giuliani, but the committee very much played up Giuliani's role in the process. I expect more on that, you know, with regard to later hearings, and we'll hear more about the dubious legal campaign that would ultimately see Giuliani disbarred. I think the segments wherein they edited the videos to have different witnesses appear to say the same thing is a pretty effective tactic, and I expect to see it again in the future. It's a really effective way to use video testimony, and superior, actually, in many ways, to, uh, you know, the typical, or I guess the old school now, tactic of calling live witnesses. Now, what I'd like to do here is to hit the highlights of some of what these video witnesses had to say on the subject of the big lie. I'll begin with Eric Hirschman, a White House attorney. Quote, what they were proposing I thought was nuts. You know, the theory was also completely nuts, right? I mean, it was a combination of Italians and Germans. I mean, different things have been floating around as to who was involved. I remember Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelans. She has an affidavit from somebody who says they wrote a software in and something with Philippines, just all over the radar. Quote from Matt Morgan, campaign attorney. Quote, I think I had conversations with probably all of our council who were signed up to assist on election day as they disengaged with the campaign. The general consensus was that the law firms were not comfortable with making the arguments that Rudy Giuliani was making publicly. I seem to recall that I had a similar conversation with most all of them. A quote from William Barr, uh, former Attorney General, General. Quote, I made it clear that I did not agree with the idea of saying that the election was stolen and pulling out this stuff, which I told the President was bullshit. And, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it. And that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. Jeffrey Rosen, former acting attorney general, quote, 
Rather than try to address a counterfactual or a hypothetical, let me just say there were instances where the president would say, people are telling me this, or I heard this, or I saw on television, you know, this impropriety in Atlanta or Pennsylvania or something. And we were in a position to say that our people already looked at that. And we know that you're getting bad information. That's, that's not correct. It's been demonstrated to be incorrect from our point of view. It had been debunked. A quote from Derek Lyons, who's an attorney and counselor to the president, Trump. Quote, month and a half or so after the election day, and at that meeting, you know, various allegations of fraud were discussed. And, you know, Eric and Pat didn't, you know, told the group, the president included, that none of those allegations had been substantiated to the point where they could be the basis for any litigation challenge to the election. So, in addition to Giuliani and Trump himself, the committee also aimed a spotlight at two of the other most important figures who worked to create the big lie, Sidney Powell and Peter Navarro. I don't think they did a great job with this part of it, but I guess the time is limited. They pointed to Powell's own words, and they seemed to hope that it was absurd enough. Of course, Sidney Powell is still facing a $1.6 billion lawsuit from Dominion, and Trump-appointed Judge Carl Nichols refuses to dismiss it. So, you know, I guess she has her own problems at this point. Now, there's also really good uh, testimony from Alex Cannon regarding Peter Navarro. So they did a better job on Navarro than they did, I think, on Powell. Uh, Cannon, again, former Trump campaign attorney. Quote, I recall him asking me questions about Dominion, he referring to Trump, and maybe some other categories of allegations of voter fraud. And I remember telling him that I didn't believe the Dominion allegations because I felt the hand recount in Georgia would resolve any issues with a technology problem and with Dominion or Dominion flipping votes. And I mentioned at that time that the CISA, Chris Krebs, had recently released a report saying that the election was secure. And I believe Mr. Navarro accused me of being an agent of the deep state, working with Chris Krebs against the president. And I never took another phone call from Mr. Navarro." End quote. So the committee has identified the correct persons involved most intimately in the big lie in connection with Trump, Giuliani, Powell, and Navarro. Now, almost all of them anyway, I, I was a bit surprised to see General Mike Flynn not even being mentioned at all in this context. That's a bit of an omission, in my opinion. Flynn took the Fifth Amendment when he appeared before the committee, so, you know, hopefully they are still looking at him. We also got a bit of a preview with regard to the testimony of Richard Donahue, the former acting Deputy Attorney General, who's going to testify at the hearing on the, the efforts by Trump to replace Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen with Jeff Clark. He has more credibility 
to me anyway, than Bill Barr does. The committee gave him a rather long segment, even though it really wasn't his actual day to testify. And they left it largely up to this witness to debunk the art assortment of fraudulent, fraudulent claims uh, that Trump put out there regarding election fraud. Apologies, I'm about to go to rather lengthy segment from Donahue because I think it was uh, some of the best testimony that we, we heard. Um, so just prepare your ears for this video, this audio clip. I tried to, again, put this in perspective and try to put it in very clear terms to the president. And I said something to the effect of, sir, we've done dozens of investigations, hundreds of interviews. The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. We've looked at Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada. We're doing our job. Much of the info you're getting is false. And then I went into, for instance, this thing from Michigan, this report about 68% error rate. Reality is it was only 0.0063% error rate, less than 1 in 15,000. So the president accepted that. Um, he said, okay, fine, but what about the others? And again, this gets back to the point that there were so many of these allegations that when you gave him a very direct answer on one of them, he wouldn't fight us on it, but he would move to another allegation. So then I talked about a little bit about the Pennsylvania truck driver. This is another allegation that had come up. And uh, this claim was by a truck driver who believed, perhaps honestly, that he had transported an entire tra uh, tractor-trailer truck full of ballots from New York Pennsylvania. And this was again out there in the public and discussed. And I essentially said, look, we looked at that allegation. We looked at both ends, both the people who load the truck and the people who unload the truck. Um, and that, that allegation was not supported by the evidence. Uh, again, he said, okay. And he said, no, I didn't mention that one. What about the others? And I said, okay, well, with regard to Georgia, we looked at the tape, we interviewed the witnesses. There is no suitcase. The president kept fixating on this suitcase that supposedly had fraudulent ballots, and the suitcase was rolled out from under the table. And I said, no, sir, there is no suitcase. You can watch that video over and over. There is no suitcase. There is a wheeled bin where they carry the ballots, and that's just how they move ballots around that facility. There's nothing suspicious about that at all. Um, I told them that there was no multiple scanning of the ballots. One of the one part of that allegation was that they were taking one ballot and scanning it through three or four or five times to rack up votes, presumably for Vice President Biden. I told them that the video did not support that. Um, then he went off on double voting at the top of the next page. He said, dead people are voting. Indians are getting paid to vote. He meant people on uh, Native American reservations. He said there's lots of fraud going on here. Looking flat out that much of the information he's getting is false and or just not supported by the evidence. We look at the allegations, but they don't pan out. I thought that worked to have a high-ranking former official from the Trump Justice Department debunk the central 
big live limbs. I really look forward to hearing the rest of uh, his testimony on Thursday, and perhaps even later. He appears to be highly cooperative. Don Hughes is a great witness for the committee. Now, I know I've been looking for a John Dean in all this. I'm not sure yet that it's Donahue, but his denunciations seem to ring truer than some of those of the other witnesses. He's articulate, and he's a central player in one major part of the story, so I have very high expectations of Mr. Donahue, despite the fact that he was appointed to the Department of Justice by Jeff Sessions, who is, I think, the third Jeff in the story, right? Jeff Rosen, Jeff Clark, and now Jeff Sessions, who, of course, left the DOJ, uh, but nonetheless, yet another Trump administration, Jeff. So that's the basic timeline and out contours of the big lie as depicted by the committee, except that I left out yet another detail, yet another bombshell that the press, for once, actually picked up on. The allegation that Trump used the big lie to bilk his donors out of $250 million. This is one part of the story that I will personally freely admit having overlooked. It's the grift, of course. It's always the grift with these people. There's always a grift with Trump. While I'm thinking about charges such as conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, the committee is out there pointing at possible wire fraud charges. Now, there has been some discussion of whether or not this itself constitutes a chargeable defense. Again, I'm not an attorney, but I think it may. It's absolutely true that there is a very wide latitude with regard to how PAC money is spent. You know, you can send it to other PACs, you can spend it on almost anything uh, conceivably related to campaigning or legal expenses associated with a campaign. Just about the only bright, clear line is with regard to personal expenditures. Um, so, you know, ordinarily that doesn't seem to be much of a problem in this regard. But here, there's the key question of telling donors that you're going to spend money on one thing and not doing that. Much like the charges with regard to the Bannon case, in which he was convicted of telling his dupes that he was going to spend money on building a wall, but then going around and buying himself a Range Rover and a boat and ultimately getting a pardon from Trump. That is wire fraud. So, kudos, Gimini. Yet another thing for the Green team to look at, and hopefully this opens up an entire can of worms with regard to, uh, you know, his pack and what they were spending money on. Because while they were saying it was going for legal defense, really, we don't know. Um, you know, they haven't spent a lot of that money and it's just Trump's money just sort of kicking around. So, I'd like to now focus on testimony from Amanda Wick, who is Senior Investigative Counsel for the U.S. House of Representatives. Quote, The claims that the election was stolen were so successful, President Trump and his allies 
raised $250 million, nearly $100 million in the first week after the election. On November 9th, 2020, President Trump created a separate entity called the Save America PAC. Most of the money raised went directly to this newly created PAC, not to election-related litigation. So, the Select Committee discovered that the Save America PAC made millions of dollars in contributions to pro-Trump organizations, including $1 million to Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' charitable foundation, $1 million to the America First Policy Institute, a conservative organization which employs several former Trump administration officials, $200,457 to the Trump Hotel Collection, and over $5 million to Event Strategies Incorporated, the company that ran President Trump's January 6th rally on the Ellipse. End quote. So, November 9th, right? Uh, coincidentally, the same day as the recorded Oath Keepers video conference that I mentioned earlier in the, the episode. So there's a lot happening, right? What a coincidence. At any rate, this is yet another possible charge. And for the Department of Justice, this would be a possible Al Capone strategy, getting Trump on a financial crime rather than his many other overt criminal acts. Moreover, by definition, with regard to the finance element, there is a paper trail, something he's not going to be able to eat or burn or flush down the toilet so there's lots of work available for the Green Team. I think that is most of the important testimony that we saw uh, in the second hearing of this tranche of hearings. I'm not when well, I'm enumerating these. I, I'm not counting uh, the, the hearing of the officers that we saw. So basically, this, this would be the second hearing, the hearing on the 13th, uh, and the hearing on the 16th today is going to be the, the third hearing. The committee has also heard from B.J. Pack, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, who's probably best known for quitting when Trump was putting pressure on him to manufacture evidence of fraud in Georgia. Basically, Pack had looked into the supposed suitcases full of ballots at the Staples Center in Atlanta and declared that it was nothing. These were the cases that the ballots were supposed to be stored in, as you just heard Donahue say, and that there was absolutely nothing improper in any way. This is basically another charge that Trump could face. You can't simply threaten to fire U.S. attorneys when their investigations don't go the way that you want them to go. This is something that we know, by the way, that the Justice Department is investigating. I believe that's why Mr. Pack's testimony is included here. It is, again, yet another possible charge. The committee also heard from Chris Steyerwalt, the former Fox News political editor, probably best known for correctly calling Arizona for Biden on election night and then being fired for it. Unlike Mr. Pack, of course, the Department of Justice isn't looking into Mr. Steyerwalt's firing, Although, I do think it's pretty absurd that he got fired for basically being good at his job. 
his testimony didn't actually go directly to any potential crimes, of course, but I thought he did a good job of explaining to a lay audience how, after a certain inflection point, elections are won, and how we know that they are won with any degree of certainty. He's not making anything up. He's operating in the real world with real ballots and real recounts. Lofgren uh, questions Starwall. Quote, I see. You know, after the election as of November 7th, in your judgment, what were the chances of President Trump winning the election? Starwalt. After that point? Lofgren. Yes. Starwalt. None. I mean, I guess there, you know, you could, you, it's always possible that you could have, you know, uh, a truck or a load of ballots found somewhere, I suppose. But once you get into this space, you know, ahead of today, I thought about what are the largest margins that could ever be overturned by a recount and the normal kind of, the kind of stuff we heard Mark, Mike Pence talking about, sounding like a normal Republican that night when he said, you know, we'll keep every challenge. Nothing like that. In a recount, you're talking about hundreds of votes. When we think about calling a race, one of the things we would look, we would think about is, is it outside of the margin of a recount? And when we think about that margin, we think about in modern history, you're talking about a thousand votes, 1,500 votes at the way, way outside. Normally you're talking about hundreds of votes, maybe 300 votes that are going to change. So the idea that through any normal process in any of these states. Remember, he had to do it thrice, right? He needed three of these states to change. And in order to do that, I mean, you're, you're an infant. You're better off to play Powerball than to have that come in. End quote. So I thought that was a great counter-argument to the absurd arguments of statistical impossibility that Trump people still put forward. Basically, Starwalt was saying that if anything is statistically impossible, it's the idea that Trump won the election. Biden won by margins that were sufficient to insulate his victory from any plausible recount. So, good testimony, just factually accurate testimony about the reality of elections in the United States on the presidential level, and debunking entirely these absurd Trumpist talking points. But in some respects, he was a bit of a strange witness to call, right? Um, I mean, there's no crime implicated here. Again, he's, you know, and there's, unlike the, the former Trump campaign officials, he wasn't speaking directly with Trump himself. Um, but nonetheless, I thought it was, it was good evidence, if not as directly related to criminal matters, as some of the other witnesses that we've heard from either in person or in video testimony. The last live witness I would like to address is Al Schmidt, a Republican serving on Philadelphia's city commission. I think that Schmidt is kind of standing in for any number of local and state officials across the country who could have been called. 
But I think that they chose Schmick because Trumpists like to make so much noise about election rigging in cities. And these are charges that they have leveled at Philadelphia in particular. I found Schmidt very credible, and it's useful to the committee, of course, that he is a Republican, although in certain circles, anyone who doesn't toe the Trumpist party line orthodoxy is automatically a deep state swamp rhino. The main uh, substance of Schmidt's testimony was this. Quote, not only was there, was there not evidence of 8,000 dead voters voting in Pennsylvania, there wasn't evidence of eight. We took seriously every case that was referred to us, no matter how fantastical, no matter how absurd, and we took every one of those seriously, including these. End quote. Lofgren also took the opportunity to note that as a consequence of his having publicly refuted the Trumpist claims of dead voters supporting Biden, Schmidt and his staff, staff received death threats. A good example, I think, of stochastic terrorism, right? Schmidt's experience here is similar to many other state and local election officials all around the country. Part of the lasting damage done by the big lie is the false narrative of widespread election fraud in the United States. Now, I know I didn't really talk about something I've talked about before, which is the Loudermilk Sedition Reconnaissance Tours. Um, nonetheless, that is a thing that's happening right now, and it is unfolding. But basically, Barry Loudermilk of the 11th District of Georgia, the 11th House District of Georgia, has been caught up in, I think, like five or six different evolving stories. Um, it looks to me as though he was personally involved in bringing people to the Capitol to take reconnaissance tours. And we know that, you know, some of those people were definitely in January 6th and brought things like sharpened flagpoles, which they were using to, you know, potentially attack someone special. And calling out various members of Congress by name. So, you know, he claimed that these were just nice people he met in church, but really they were violent insurrectionists who were, more importantly, taking pictures of uh, different various staircases and tunnel entrances and things of that nature that, you know, warrant a closer look. Now... I think that Loudermilk is actually typical of many members of the Sedition Caucus. And I'd be curious to see, if you were to look at pictures of uh, members of the Sedition Caucus and their campaign in 2020, and their pictures that they've posted publicly of their various campaign offices and their various campaign workers, would you find anyone, would you find any facial recognition matches with people who were at the January 6th rally and or the January 6th Capitol attack? I don't know. So, you know, it'd be worth looking into that. Uh, every member of Congress has a photo gallery that they post on their site, and it might be worth just looking at that. Um, so, you know, 
all that stuff's in the Wayback Regime. There's no possibility of them being able to, to leave this at this point. So I'm not giving away the keys to the city. But I am suggesting, again, as we've seen with Avery McCracken, who posed with Lauren Boebert in the context of doing paid campaign work, um, perhaps there are members of Congress who paid people to come to D.C., who actively recruited people during their campaign in 2020 for the contingency of bringing them to D.C. to attack the Capitol and obstruct the certification of electoral votes on January 6th. So, you know, Loudermilk, I, to my mind, he's the first one. He's the first one to go down because there's the, you know, excellent videotape. It's not one family with small children who are wearing red baseball caps. It's a family of, you know, it's a group of violent, unrelated Trumpist insurrectionists. And they haven't talked about this in the media yet, but Milk led the tour personally. And he has said, well, I just love leading tours personally for my constituents. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe he led it personally because he didn't want to have to answer questions with regard to Capitol Police. Maybe he knew the Capitol Police would be more responsive and deferential to a member, particularly one who serves on the committees that he happens to serve on, that oversee the facilities of the Capitol, than other people. So, we'll see. You know, it's an evolving story. It's a rapidly evolving story. It's one that I personally have been obsessed with. You've, you've heard about my, you know, my different uh, ideas about these violent men who are recruited. And there is the possibility that, you know, people were, were recruited during the 2020 campaign to come and attack the Capitol on January 6th. Because as we've seen in Exhibit 10 from the Vallejo material, they realized early on, uh, as early as November 9th, that they were going to attack the Capitol. And indeed, some sources have suggested that they realized as early as September of 2020 that Trump was going to lose and that they were going to come up with some kind of plan B to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. So, uh, it's actually early morning hours in the 16th of June. So at 1 o'clock today, we will have the third January 6th uh, committee meeting. Um, and it will regard the attempted firing of acting U.S. Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. So that will be at 1 o'clock. Thank you so much. And uh, again, until next time, I am Scott Coon.